Hi, I'm Jackie Lewis. Hi, I'm Ruby Sales. And this is Women Talk God, a podcast about God, movement building, redemption, and healing the soul of America. How many of you in here can tell me the names of your great-great-grandparents on your mother's side and on your father's side? What does that tell you about what we've been talking about today? Mm-hmm. Separation, yeah. Yes, and, and dismemory, right? Dismemory, yeah. And what is it that you're not remembering? You're not remembering when your grandparents stood outside of, the, when they were strangers at the gate of power. And that's the whole purpose of this memory. Because once we all remember when our ancestors stood outside the gates of power, that's the common ground that we can walk home together uh, with. Yeah. But as long as we forget that, then we can other each other Mm. and pretend and, and to riddle and shame because all of our families were not rich, or, or we were not, our ancestors were not middle class. So we make up these stories about coming from, we forget that we came from poverty. We forget that we came, because we're ashamed of it. Because to be who we are means that we must have, that, we, that if we are not who they say we should be, then something is wrong with us. And I think that each of us carry a great deal of shame. I know that there are some black people who hide their roots, and many, many white people pretend that they woke up every morning and was born middle class. Mm-hmm. They never talk about their working class roots. They never talk about their victorious grandparents who made a way out of no way. That's history to be proud of and said they claim the history of the oppressor Amen. by pretending that they always had stuff. So I think that it is important for us in this season to go back and claim our ethnic roots and to claim the sound of our great-grandparents' voice and struggles. Amen. And if you do that, I promise you, your hearts will be tender. And we will no longer be others in each other's sights. And let's get rid of the shame of whiteness. I'm working with a group of white men They came 25 strong from around the country. And for the first day, all they could pontificate, they could give you an analysis of capitalism and and, and colonial capitalism and and, and neo-colonialism, but they they could not say what they felt. They could tell you what was in the head, but couldn't touch the heart, because there was such a numbness there. And when I really scratched the surface of that, they were that small. Mm. All of the posturing about being large was really covered by a deep sense of smallness. And I had a revelation, and we all had a revelation that day. And we began to touch the shame. And the shame is dealt with in one or two ways. Progressive people say to white men, shut up. You can't talk because you're this, you're that. Anybody who tells you you can't talk, you run away from them too, because they're trying to kill you. That's not the answer to the solution. But the question is, how do you show up differently? And, 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 and how is it that you live in a world that, that you begin to feel 
not only the harm that you've done to others, but the harm that the world has done to you. And it was very interesting, the second day of that gathering, those men began to talk about what they felt. They began to touch their numbers. And a strange thing happened that first day. When we went around introducing ourselves, I noticed something that shocked me. They, would all, they said, well, my name is such and such a person. My grandparents owned slaves. Or my name is such and such a person, and my uncle was a member of the Ku Klux Klan. Something struck me as really ironical and paradoxical, that on the one hand, while they pretended to be ashamed, there's a part of them that liked that because it meant that they were part of a ruling class. Wow. So that they said that as a pretense of contrition, but really it was a way of saying that I'm not poor white trash, that I came from the aristocracy. And I called it out. And, and so we, those are the ambivalences that we must deal with. We must deal with those, and it shows up in all of our speech. It shows up in my speech. It shows up in your speech. Let's, ta- let's have some conversation. Let's take a few questions. Hi, I'm Jawanza. Thank you both so much hey, for having a good time. Hi. Um, Jackie, we once preached a sermon about um, metanoia, mm. and um, oh. it's coming up a lot here for me, and I was wondering if you two would explore what those words mean for the congregation here. Thank you. Thank you. Metanoia learning how to be changed, be not conformed to the world, but be transformed uh, by the renewing of your minds. I think when, when that was written, there's a sense of butterfly or you know, turning into a thing so you become a thing. I, I think about conform is taking some Play-Doh and pushing it through, extruding it. That's taking the shape of. But transform is really changed. And actually, I think there's a little dying in the changing. And it, and it might be why we don't want to change. Because we are afraid of the void, afraid of the death. Yes. We're afraid of going all the way over there, right? My God, you know, when Ruby talks about white people letting go of their, their roots, their ethnicity. I read an article one time, Jamila, called White Means Never Having to Say You're Ethnic. There's like the passing. I'm going to become white in America so I can survive. I'm gonna leave Polish. I'm gonna leave Ukrainian, right? I'm gonna leave Jewish. My, my Jewish friends are calling themselves white now. I'm like, what? When did that happen? But there's something that died when they let go of their ethnicity to be transformed into white. But if we're gonna transform, let's say, into something that we have more of a, we think of more as an ideal, Let's say our picture of what that is, is the whole people of God. Let's say that we buy into maybe Ubuntu, right? I am because you are. So it's not just me becoming me, it's me becoming we. If we are gonna be the whole people of God, I've gotta die a little bit to my individuality. I've gotta die a bit to my pride. I've gotta die a bit to my shame. I've got to die a bit to my roadmap, you know, the, the one you inherit from your Mississippi red, raised black parents and say, this is what success looks like. So I'm thinking I would make a connection between just like in the 
insect world or in parts of the animal world, there's a shedding, a letting go of, a little bit of dying to become. I think we have to die a little to become. And I think some of those courageous people who are willing to die so we could become blows my mind wide open. But it happened. We get to become in the, in the, in the wake of their dying. And if each of us are willing to let a little bit of the thing that blocks us die, I think we will become the humanity that God intended. How many of you feel valued in a capitalist technocracy? Oh, oh everybody went, oh. <laughs> how many of you Not deal, there. <laughs> how many of you deal with the, the, with the question of loneliness and alienation? Let's be honest. How many of you wake up some mornings depressed? We got a community going on, you know why? Because no matter the age, no matter the sexuality, no matter the ethnicity, what? We all have what? These common feelings, right? Yeah. So the question is, where do they come from? And how might we begin to be healed? And whether or not consuming has changed any of that. Yeah. And whether or not power has changed any of that. Mm -hmm. Because let's face it, the guardians of whiteness are insatiable. There's not enough power, there's not enough money, there's not enough land theft, there's not enough genocide to satisfy that hunger. Because the hunger is what? It's not a material hunger. It's, it's a spiritual, a spiritual hunger. hunger. And so how is it then do we begin to develop a movement that is both transcendent as well as transactional? How do we deal with these issues? And the other thing that I learned from the Civil Southern Freedom Movement is that you don't go into communities trying to psychologically change people to make them resemble you. You don't get into, well, this person did this and they did that and they're not. We showed up, I didn't wear hats because I thought it was all just a bunch of crap. But when I went into the community and went to church, I put on a hat. Because the last thing that I wanted to do was to go into a community that was totally disrespected every day to say that I'm working with you, but I also disrespect you because I'm going to tell you once again you're doing everything wrong. Mm -hmm. Why would anybody want to work with you? What is the good news? So you negotiate a way that you negotiate the I with the we. How is, it's not going to kill you to put on a hat. The mission is not whether or not you wear hats. The mission is building what? A beloved community. Mm, right. But in whiteness, it's either my way or the highway. So you go into communities where people do things very differently and automatically you start trying to rearrange their house without understanding, wow, this is a new seat. Let me figure out how to sit here. You have to take the love that they can offer and help them to get to another level while they're helping you because you don't come there perfect either. And so how do we negotiate the common space, right? How do we accept love? And that's the work that we've got to do. Thank you both very much for this. It's very powerful. Um, I'm an unabashed white northern liberal progressive. Um, and so earlier you were talking about the difference between northern liberalism and southern freedom movement. And you, you made mention of the fact that uh, some of us white people like to educate blacks so they can be like us, whereas I was raised to think that educating blacks 
made a better community, made all of us whole, made all the boats rise with the tide. So can you talk a little bit about either how community builds towards the negative of empire, forcing community on others in a way that's negative, or community is a more positive aspect in how we can break down ourselves and our individualism to become a more community-based Christianity? Even when we think we speak freedom language, we speak in forked tones. We speak the language of empire. Let's be very clear about that. Now, it's really important to understand, as Plato and Aristotle reminded us, that there's no such thing as education that's value-free. That education is the protects of what? The prerogatives of whom? The guardians of society. They protect the status quo. That's why when you go to school, you learn white American history and you don't learn black history. You don't learn Latino history. You, don't, you learn what? You learn, you learn, as Howard Zinn pointed out, you don't learn the people's history. So education is an instrument, as Machiavelli pointed out, to eradicate the culture consciousness of a people and to embed in them the consciousness of empire. So to think that education is value-free is to be somewhere in la-la land. To think that, why do you think women have to fight for women's studies? Because all the, all the people were men. So we have to begin to offer a critique of an emancipatory praxis. We've got a very complicated task. How is it that we speak in tongues within the educational system where everybody exists in the conversation? So to take, to take black kids out of their communities at five and six years old and have them never to go home again that helps the empire, but it depletes the talents of the black community. Mm-hmm. That's called co-optation. I don't know if it's really a question, but I know you had spoken, you had asked a few times, Pastor Jackie, about um, African-American and their religion. Yeah. Um, and so I'm, I'm thinking a larger, you know, Africans and religion and yeah. um, in a diaspora, how Africans were scattered throughout the world yeah. and no matter what, religion or beliefs were forced on them, there was something that was inside that came out and came through whatever they were being taught or however they were being forced. And it seems that as we have um, lived in the world and lived through the world, we have renamed the deities. We have done all types of things to shape and reshape those beliefs to what we had inside of us, what we felt inside of us. I think it's a really great comment and I think because you and I are African diaspora people, we have, a, we have like a resonance with that, right? I'll bet if I was in a room and I could peek in on like a bunch of Irish women, they could describe something similar yeah. that has to do with their Irishness and, you know, fieriness and their potato farming, you know, whatever, something like in their culture where they, where Buddha sat under a tree and they sat someplace around a fire, right? And we had drums. And I think that's the thing that is beautiful. How is my Africanness? shaping my spirituality, because I think you're right that it does. And then I would really be curious, love, about what, is there a taproot when we were Eve in Africa? Like before the Scotch left Africa and became Scotch? What's that thing? This is Women Talk God, a podcast for people of faith 
and people of no faith to talk about where is love in the world and how can we build a movement with it. These conversations, Women Talk God and others, are going to be up on our website at middlechurch.org, also at Spirit House Project, so you can talk to us because we have got to make a different America, and we can. A different United States of America, and we can. Can we say, I am worthy. I am worthy. I will be whole. Amen. For more resources on healing the world with love and justice, go to middlechurch.org. Thanks for listening.